Let's take our Bibles. We're looking to the Gospel of Luke today, the 23rd chapter of Luke. If you're new to the Bible, uh, pull out one of those there in the seat in front of you and just look at the index. You'll find Luke there in the New Testament. Uh, it's just right in the beginning of the New Testament. Just uh, hang out with me in the Scripture today. Or you can always whip out your phone, pull up your Bible app, and uh, follow us that way as well. I want to talk to you today about an Easter morning scandal. That's sort of an unusual title for Easter, isn't it? Uh, believe me, the Lord and I have been talking about this for a few days. Lord, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm in the right direction here, but I, I think I am after just praying through this and recognizing that we tend to idolize the people of the resurrection narrative namely the women and the disciples who go to the tomb. However, people surrounding the resurrection had all the right intentions, but made many of the wrong moves. And I want to talk about that today because Jesus lovingly pursued them even though they were making the wrong moves. And that's good news for us because so many of us are attempting to make the wrong moves in life. Our intentions are good, but we prove to falter in those. But no doubt, Jesus continues patiently pursuing us. So I want to just look at this today out of the 23rd chapter of Luke and just discover what God is teaching us in this section. It says in verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus, him, from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, I'm sort of in the middle of a narrative here, but let me catch you up in the context, both before and after. I, I'm intrigued with the people who the gospel mentions here being at the crucifixion and at the tomb. If you're like me, you've been reading the narratives of the gospels for most of your life, and particularly in this season that we're in right now, I just go back to them and over and over and over, read them and listen to them and just try to get in my mind what, what was happening in that time. They showed those people remarkable courage and bravery as they were there among the crucifixions on Calvary at that moment. They, they showed bravery and courage, specifically the women that are mentioned. And they were courageous as well on the tomb site that morning that they were looking to anoint the body of Christ. I'm intrigued by people like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who also demonstrated bravery when they went against the decision of the Sanhedrin. They, they were of the minority opinion. The rest of the Sanhedrin was asking for the crucifixion of Christ, really demanding the crucifixion of Christ, but not those two. They pursued after Christ at his death, maybe not so much in his life. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple, but he was a, a quiet one. He didn't want that decision known quite yet. But once the crucifixion happened, he saw all that took place. He didn't care what people thought about him. He went to take the body of Christ and have him buried in an honorable way. The gospel writers mention the women who were there at the tomb that morning. Throughout the gospels, they talk about that. Luke mentions three of them. Can I just move through those real quickly with you? It's Mary Magdalene. Now, that's not Mary, her first name, Magdalene, her second name, or her last name. It actually is communicating this is Mary who is from the city or the town of Magdala. 
And so they call her Magdalene. She was well known in that city. You know why she was well known? Because she had seven demons living within her and Jesus freed her from those seven demons. She was in bad shape, well known. And he had another lady named Joanna. Joanna was the wife of a man named Chusa. He was actually the servant or the, the steward of Herod Antipas's house, meaning that he was the guy who was responsible for all the financial and the household duties, all the running of Herod's house. Now, you do know Herod is no friend of Jesus, right? I mean, Herod is the one who passed him back and forth among Pilate and himself determining his execution. And here's a woman who's married to Chusa, the steward, the manager of the household of Herod. Now, it took a whole lot of payment for them to get into that spot, but they have finally paid whatever it took to get themselves in a position politically and socially where they were set. But yet, Joanna was serving and following after Christ she was there at his crucifixion, and she was there on the morning of his resurrection. And he had another lady named Mary. She was the mother to the younger James. Uh, we don't know much about her. In fact, Bible commentators debate a good bit about actually who she is. Could she be a sister, a prominent sister? Who is she? We, we really don't know. But Luke mentions them very intentionally, and I think what he is communicating to us potentially is that no matter your background, nothing precludes you from coming to Jesus. Nothing. In fact, Jesus meant what he said when he said the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have everlasting, eternal life. Who? Whoever believes in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the same thing that was mentioned more succinctly in Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Reinforcing this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. That whosoever and whoever and everyone is very intentional. So no matter your background, Christ is offering himself to you. You don't have to do anything in order to receive God's grace. It's a wonderful gift that he extends to everybody of all backgrounds. So God is offering salvation to people who have a sin-scarred background, a background of failure and regret, a background like Mary Magdalene, who was filled and lived with evil all of her life until she met Jesus. And Jesus is offering salvation to people who align themselves with the world, the world's ways, the political structures, the financial way, the social ways of the world. No matter that background, Jesus is offering himself to people like that, just like Joanna. I love her name, by the way, which means Jehovah is a gracious giver. No matter your background, Jehovah is a gracious giver to you. It could be that God is offering salvation to you who feel like you're unknown and obscure. 
You, you might be like Mary, the, the mother of James the Younger, or the other women who are not even mentioned by name. You're wondering if you're even known. Listen to me. God not only knows your name, he calls you unto himself to be saved. Well, what a wonderful reminder in just the mention of women in this narrative of the gospel. But, but Luke is offering to us more than just their names. Let's continue on in the, the reading now in chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, when they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, listen to this, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hand of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with him who told these things to the apostles. Now, as I mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea stepped forward to claim the body of Jesus following his death. Luke described him as a good man, a, a righteous man looking for the kingdom of God. And although he had not openly professed Jesus Christ as Lord, now after witnessing all that he had seen at the crucifixion, all the experiences that happened, the earthquake, the skies grew dark, the words of Jesus that were uttered on that cross, he could care less what his fellow Sanhedrin council members would think or say. And he pursued to honor Christ. There's little doubt that Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the other women who were there watched as Joseph ran to Pilate. He had three hours to ask permission for the body of, of Jesus to be given to him, to bring that body down off that cross, and along with Nicodemus to place that body anointed with a hundred pounds of spices in his own tomb and had that stone rolled in place before sun would set and the Sabbath would begin and no such work would ever be able to be accomplished. Just three hours. And the women were watching all that was transpiring. They didn't know those guys. Well, they, the women were from Galilee. These men, Joseph and Nicodemus, they were from Judea. Two very different regions. They wouldn't have known them personally. But I don't have any doubt that they knew they were part of the 71 of the Sanhedrin who called for the execution of Jesus. Not that those men specifically did. They were opposed to that. But they were linked to the group who had been calling for the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so watching what was transpiring, no matter what those men were going to do, the women would do it all over again on Sunday morning because they would do it with love and honor and care for the one that they called rabbi. These women really stand out in my mind. But here's what I want us to settle into. Sometimes 
people are misguided with good intentions. Now, early in this resurrection narrative, the reader might think that the women, that they were doing everything right because their intentions were good. But soon the women would hear a rebuke from two angels sent of God from heaven. Now, I'm not here to vilify those, those ladies. The other disciples, they were not even brave to attempt to honor the Lord in this kind of way. But intentions that are not based on God's word are misguided at best and more than likely sinful. Did you hear that? Intentions, though they're good, that are not based in God's word are at best misguided and probably sinful. See, Jesus is not honored by our good intentions. Jesus is honored by our trust and obedience to his word. And just watching what's transpiring here, we get this notion that God is requiring more of us than good intentions. He is requiring that we trust him and we obey him. So simply stated, the women had no business being in a cemetery on the very day that Jesus said he would be resurrected. There was no reason for them to do that. Now, I find often that people and their misguided good intentions kind of rise to the surface when a loved one dies. If you want to hear some bad theology, if you want, to, you want to see some good intentions without biblical truth, it often circles around when people are hurting because of the death of a loved one. And that's when we just need to pause and say, oh, wait, do my words and my intentions right now match what God has said in his word? Misguided intentions, though good, that are not linked to God's word, turn out to be bad. Which leads me to this next point that I wanted you and me to look at today. Sometimes well-intended people have bad inclinations. So it's not just this, an intention that's meant to be good that turns out to be bad. It turns out that the inclination itself is wrong. And how do we get wrong on the inclination? Well, bad inclinations occur when our beliefs are not grounded in God's truth. That's where our, our intellect gets off, where, where we're not, no longer biblically centered. Now, here, these well-intending women were acting on wrong beliefs. And here's where they faltered as well as all the disciples. You hanging with me? Look, look what they had. As Jewish people, they had privy to the Old Testament scripture, unlike many others. Now, they were too communicate those scriptures to others, but they had them and they were trained in them. So in Genesis 3, when God said that there would be an offspring of woman who would defeat Satan in the works of Satan, they would know that that offspring would be the Messiah. And that triggered from Genesis 3, a watchfulness. And in Micah, he prophesied that the Messiah would actually be born in Bethlehem. And in Zechariah, described the Messiah as king who would be righteous and victorious, but would be humble. And catch this, we talked about it last week on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey. 
And the scripture says in Isaiah that the Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of the people. And a thousand years before the events actually took place, David explained how the Messiah would be surrounded by his enemies, would be mocked and insulted, and ultimately would be pierced and killed. Jesus quoted from that very passage that David wrote to help people to link he's talking about him when he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wants them to understand David was conferring those words onto him. And of course, David also wrote in the 16th Psalm that the Messiah would not just die, but he would rise from the dead. They knew the narrative of Jonah, that great prophet who was commissioned by God, disobedient as he was, who stayed in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. They knew, they heard about him. But they also heard Jesus link himself with him, saying that the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the earth. They heard all those things, but yet it didn't sink. It didn't come into their mind with clarity. They had the scriptures. And they had Jesus' treasure of his ministry. They heard Jesus as he ministered. They saw him throughout the region of Galilee. You know, Galilee was like the the hub for Jesus' ministry. Much of the work, most of the miracles that he did... They were right there in Galilee, and all these women were from that region, so they traveled with him. The scripture says that they actually supported him financially and otherwise, and and they heard his preaching about the kingdom of God. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him give sight to the blind. They saw him raise the lame, and all those were not just random miracles. All those were specific miracles that the prophet said only the Messiah would be able to do. They saw and witnessed that. And then finally, they repeatedly heard Jesus tell of his impending death and his resurrection. In fact, every gospel writer records those words, most of them multiple times. Can I just go through a few of those real quickly with you? Matthew gives us this instruction. Remember when when Peter says to the Lord, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that? That, that bold proclamation about who Jesus, Matthew says it's at that point forward that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer the things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. Matthew told them clearly as Jesus said. Mark does the same thing that the son of man is going to be delivered over into the hands of sinful men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise, Jesus said. And while he was heading into Jerusalem on the very last time, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that has been written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And then finally, John records that Jesus compared himself as the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. For he said, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. 
The point is, all the gospel writers communicated what Jesus was communicating to his disciples. And all those accounts, we have to wonder, why did the disciples of Jesus not get it? Neither the men or the women, they didn't hear or understand, even though he was speaking it to them plainly. And let me tell you why they didn't get it. They didn't get it because you can't come to eternal spiritual truths unless God opens your eyes and heart and ears to them. It's not something you're going to be able to figure out on your own. Here's people who had all the scriptures of the Old Testament. They witnessed all the miracles of Jesus. They heard his amazing teaching and they heard him repeat it over and over and over. I'm going to die, be buried and resurrected and they didn't get it. And you might be wondering, why am I not getting it? Could I ask you to stop trying to get it and ask the Lord of hope to open your eyes, to open your ears, and open your heart to the truth? For the last several days, I've been praying specifically for that. For every person in this room and those who will be listening to this message, God, please open their eyes, open their ears, and open their heart. I've had people tell me coming into this service that they've invited friends, people that they love, to the service. And you know what I'm thinking while they're telling me that? Oh, Lord, open their eyes, open their ears, open their heart, that they might hear and receive and understand your truth now, once Jesus began to reveal his resurrection to the disciples, he revealed himself as being resurrected. And once they received the Holy Spirit, their minds and hearts opened fully to him. They began to understand the truth of the scripture and understand the teachings of Christ. And I can tell you the same is true for us. For trusting and surrendering our lives to Christ and being filled by his spirit will open our eyes and open our heart and open our understanding. Making our intentions and our inclinations in sync with Jesus. And when our intentions and inclinations are in sync with Jesus, we begin to live an abundant life. I'm talking about abundance that's beyond just what the world can give. An abundance of life that what those folks were talking about on the screen is filled with joy that you don't get unless Jesus gives it to you. So let me just repeat this notion that wrong beliefs and inclinations are those that are disconnected from God's word, making good intentions bad because they're not rooted in biblical truth. And man, I, how I hope the 21st century Christians, those of us in this room, will understand that truth. Because you and I are image bearers of Jesus Christ who has created us. We are ambassadors of him. We hold the treasure of his word and been told to be witnesses proclaiming that word. Therefore, we must be strong and courageous and righteous because if you haven't recognized the world has pivoted and they are breaking against natural laws and historical laws, historical truths and norms and morality and God has given you and me, the faithful and true ones, the leading opportunity to guide them back to him and his word so I pray we won't be filled with good intentions as much as we'll be filled with the goodness of his truth 
And then out of the goodness of his truth, our intentions will align perfectly with Jesus and we'll make our mark in this world. That's exactly what the disciples were doing. After they began to understand the resurrected Christ, and after the Spirit of God filled them and empowered them, they transformed the world with God's truth. Now listen to me. I want you to hear this. You and I are no different from them. We struggle. We have doubts. We have confusion. We have misunderstandings. We have good intentions that are misaligned to truth. When we come to the resurrected Christ and when we are filled with his spirit and when he opens his truth of scripture to us, man, how things change. I'm grateful for that. Leads me to that last point that I wanted to share with you this morning that sometimes God has to reset us with holy instruction. And that's exactly what God was doing when he sent the angels to the the women there saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now we rarely think of scandalous, uh, scandal being good intentions, but however, it was scandalous for the women to go to the tomb that day to seek to anoint Jesus' body for permanent burial. That was scandalous. No one would ever be saved from their sin or death or God's judgment by one day reading a tombstone there in Jerusalem outside the city walls, reading the epitaph that says, here lies Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Lord and Savior. Nobody's going to ever be saved by reading an epitaph like that of a man who was willing to die for others. Oh, sure, Jesus died for us. But Jesus resurrected for us as well. Listen, God saves us through Jesus Christ, the sinless one who took our sin upon himself, bearing the justice of God in our stead. In the death, we were condemned to die. Joseph and Nicodemus put that broken and lifeless body in the tomb, rolled the stone in place. Guards were placed there in front of it to guard and protect it, sealed it so nobody could get into it. However, on Sunday morning, resurrection morning, at the exact time that was prescribed before eternity passed, when Jesus was ever born on earth, his lifeless body came to life again. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, gloriously became the risen Christ and the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. On resurrection morning, the earthquake as the angel descended from heaven and rolled that stone away. Listen, he didn't roll the stone stone away to let Jesus out of the tomb. He rolled the stone away to let the women see in the tomb that he wasn't there. And then, and so the angels presented themselves to the women and they asked the all important words, the most significant words uttered. He is not here. He has risen Come and see. Come and see. Wow. And man, did they ever see. They saw not only the empty grave, they saw the resurrected Jesus. Let me just tell you, before that, they were running away. 
When Jesus needed them the most on the night of his crucifixion, all the disciples were running away. But once they saw his resurrected body, once they saw the wounds in his hand and its feet, once they put their fingers to his side, once they saw and he opened their eyes and the spirit of God came upon them, man, there wasn't any running from that anymore. They became bold and courageous in their witness. And Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses. And witnesses they were, 500 of them. And can I remind you that all of them who saw the resurrected Lord claimed that resurrection until the day that they were murdered for claiming that he is the son of God. When it's just good intentions, you might run away when it's tough. But when it's reality and you know it and you recognize all that Christ had afforded you in the death and the resurrection, you'll proclaim the goodness to your death. That's exactly what they did. So these words of announcement that he is risen, he's not here, come and see, those were the words of victorious victorious claim of Jesus who has victory, had victory over sin, death, and the grave, a victory that he specifically came to share with you and me. So today we commemorate the resurrection, but we celebrate it 365 days of the year, don't we? For in the resurrection, Jesus Christ proves that he is the son of God. He is Messiah. In the resurrection, Jesus, the sinless one and divine one, makes his statement. Even in death, his body never saw corruption. Jesus is our hope and life, exactly as he said he would be. And Jesus is the triumph over death, sharing that resurrected life with us. He's the first fruits, enduring the, ensuring that the sting of death is only temporary. Jesus is coming again, and at his return, the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are alive and remain, who are left at his coming, will be called up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and together. Together, we will be with him for all eternity there. Oh, the resurrection makes all the difference. So the men and the women closest to Jesus, they missed the prophetic truths and his teaching regarding the burial, the death, and that resurrection of Christ. However, the story does not end in doubt and confusion. It doesn't leave us hanging. The story quickly shifts to confidence and power and transformation. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus is patient and he is long suffering. Been pouring into them for three years, night and day, living life with them. You'd think by now he'd say enough with you. Oh no, Jesus is patient and he is long suffering. Oh, that's great news for us. Because a long time ago, Jesus could have said of this one, enough with you. I'm done with you. If you don't have it by now, you're not going to get it. If you're not going to be transformed in this, you're not going to be transformed ever. He could have said that, but Jesus is patient and he is long-suffering and he endured 
the rebellious heart that I have. He endured the sinful flesh that I find myself with. He endured the regret and failures of my life until the point that he opened my eyes and his spirit came into my life and brought transformation to me. Still transforming me to this day. Still being patient with me to this day. Still proving to be long-suffering to me to this day. And so it was for the disciples and so it will be for you. But not only is he patient, but he is also purposeful in moving towards people, calling us to be transformed, bringing us into his kingdom, opening our minds, opening our heart to his word, and then assigning us to his eternal purposes. Still confused and doubtful, the, the Lord came to the disciples and he gave them this spiritual aha moment. And this is the point that I want for us, that this morning would be a spiritual aha moment. It was transformational for the disciples. And Luke records it for us in the 24th chapter, beginning in verse 44. Watch it on the screens. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's he saying there? Everything from Genesis all the way through before the gospel in the New Testament, everything from the first pages all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, all of that was about me. Jesus is saying, these are the words that I showed you that you yet to put together. And look what he says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Let me just say, there's some preachers that say, oh, you ought to just kind of discount the Old Testament. You ought not hang out in the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't for us anymore. I say to those preachers, hogwash. The Old Testament from Genesis all the way through is pointing to Jesus. It is the testament of Jesus, just like the New Testament is the testament of Jesus. It's all pointing to him. And he let the disciples know everything that you have been understanding all your life about that scripture is fulfilled in me. Now you are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. Who is that? That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the promise that God has given. But he said, now you stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on a high. In other words, I know you're going to want to go out and tell people about this. I know you want to go out and make a difference. But you ought not do it in your own power. Stay in the city till the promise comes of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes... Whoa, whoa, whoa. When he comes, every intention you have will be empowered by the Holy Spirit in perfect alignment with my scripture. And what a difference. The world has never been the same. What does that say for us? Our good intentions won't mean anything. Actually could cause a whole lot of harm. But when our intellect, the inclination matches with scripture empowered by the holy spirit in relationship with jesus christ what a transformation it makes 
Your school desperately needs disciples of Jesus like that. You're the ones called. Your neighborhood, our community, desperately needs disciples exactly like this. You and I are the ones called. Your workplace, and boy, how some of those folks can aggravate the snot out of you. You are God's commissioned witnesses for the people in that workplace. Not your good intentions. Not the inclinations, what you think is right. But the word of God impregnating your mind and your heart with life. A surrendered life because you know the resurrected Christ empowered by his spirit, will make all the difference in the world. Listen, the news that we read and watch is horrific. For such a time as this, we are here. Let it be that we make a difference. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, in this moment, I pray that you're giving us insight on this, the resurrection celebration day, oh, I pray, Lord, that you'll find us exactly where we are, and most importantly, that you will help us to discover exactly where we are in mind, in heart, in spirit. And Lord, maybe today is the day of reset for some. I say, yes, Lord. Yes, please. Reset us in our thinking and in our intentions. Reset our hearts, Lord, I pray. And if you will, be so patient. Invite us into your kingdom work to a great level, to the glory of Jesus, I pray, for the good of the people that you place us in the midst of in Jesus' name, amen.